Welcome to church, everyone, on this very special weekend. We are um, right in the middle of this special weekend that we're calling the Resurrection Weekend. We had a special service last night, and we're having our Sabbath service as usual today. And tonight, we have another special service um, with dinner and a special moment to reflect and and engage in the cross. Uh, We're in the middle of this, but we're actually at the end of our current series, and our current series which is called, which has been called Last Week, Last Week. And we've been focusing on the last week of Jesus for the last few, few weeks. And we've been looking and slowing down to, to dissect and analyze and reflect and hear what God has to say, hear what Jesus shows us, hear, see what he shows us through the last week of his life. And now we are here at the end of that very last week of his life on earth. And we're here to talk about the cross. And I've preached on this before. This is one of those weekends where you kind of got to talk about the thing, you know. Like there's a couple weekends that you, when when that weekend comes around, you can't really talk about other stuff. And this is one of those weekends. So I've talked about it many times. And oftentimes where my mind went, and even as I began preparing this message, my mind went to guilt. My mind and and this message began to be about, look what we've done. Look what we did. We put him on that cross. And it was this like experience of of, of shame and guilt. And then I thought for a moment as I was preparing, I was like, this is not what God wants for us. He doesn't want us to sit here and listen to about how bad we are that he had to die for us. And sure, that's a part of it. And we're going to get to moments of that. But you can't just have that. The cross is so much more. So I want to tell you guys what my hope and prayer and the goal for today is. It's not guilt. It's gratitude. That's what I want. I want us to walk away from this worship service, this room, not feeling guilty, but feeling grateful. Like I want us to have a deep sense of gratefulness and gratitude for the cross and what Jesus did. A deep sense of of worship, not guilt, worship and celebration. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at three kind of three little stories during the very end of Jesus' life before the cross. And for me, these three moments really like grew in me a deep sense of gratitude and thankfulness. And I'm hoping the same thing will happen for you. Now, we're going to pray before this, uh, we get into the message, and usually what I do is I just, you know, pray a prayer here, but I want to do something different. It's a special weekend. I wore a suit today. It's a special weekend. We're celebrating the resurrection and the cross, and so we're going to do something a little bit different, and, and, and what we're going to do is we're going to, do, we're going to pray together, but we're going to pray a prayer from the book of Psalms, and it's really short. It's from Psalm 68, 19 and 20. And I'm going to read a line, or I'm going to share a line, and then you just repeat after me. Um, and and I, I felt like, you know, a long time ago in our churches, I don't know if you grew up in a church that, that did responsive reading. Did you guys grow up in a church like where they did that? Honestly, I was not a fan. I was like, this is very culty, guys. This is very culty. However, as I'm growing and maturing, there is a lot of beauty in that. And so I want to do a little bit of that today. And if this is weird for you, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to do it. You don't have to do anything. You can just listen. But I just felt like it was appropriate to pray this prayer together. So 
Can we all stand together as we pray this prayer from Psalm 68? I don't always do this. If you're comfortable, and then repeat after me as we pray this prayer. Praise be to the Lord, to the God, to God our Savior. Who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Amen. You can have a seat. That was powerful, guys. That was powerful. The first moment I want to look at is in the Garden of Gethsemane before Jesus goes to the cross. And again, these are three moments that have, 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 grow in me, have grown in me a deep sense of gratitude for the cross. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, you know, we, we think about the story of the cross and we often think Jesus won the war, right? He won the whole thing on the cross. And that is absolutely true. But I think as you read the stories and you read the narrative and you read, like, what Jesus says and what he goes through, I think that though Jesus won the war over sin and death on the cross, it was actually in Gethsemane where he won the decisive battle. Because in Gethsemane, what you see in Jesus that you've never seen before in his entire life is hesitation. You never see that with Jesus. You never see him walk up to a sick person's like, oh, oh maybe, maybe, maybe not, maybe not. Looking around at the, the religious leaders, oh, maybe this is not a good time. You never see that. Jesus is confident. He's always direct, intentional. But for the first time, he hesitates. And he's in this garden where this battle is taking place between him and the powers of darkness. And he's beginning to feel the weight of sin. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 26. The Bible tells us a story. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and said to them, sit here while I go there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus is like really struggling here like never before. It's hard for him to walk. He's never shared these kinds of words, this kinds of, he's never been so transparent in his humanness before. He's struggling. And I think it's so interesting that this decisive battle is in a garden. Just like thousands of years before in the book of Genesis, that battle was taking place in a garden. And so we have this weird parallel and this weird symbolism that in the garden, humanity lost. And Jesus is now facing a battle over sin and death and the powers of darkness once again in a garden. And then he prays this prayer. It says, going a little farther, let's put it on the screen. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. That's a very scary prayer, guys. Do you hear that? If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. I, translation, I don't want to do this. Isn't that weird? Jesus hesitating, I don't want to do this. I know you've asked me, and I've done everything you've asked me, God, but this... 
I'm feeling separated from you. I'm feeling torn apart from my insides. I, I don't know if I, I want to do this. And then he, he, he comes back a second time and prays a similar prayer, but notice the differences. It says, he went a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. I don't know if you guys notice that there's a difference between the two prayers. I know they sound very similar. They have that same phrase at the end, not my will but yours will be done. But it's very different. The, there's a progression of faith and commitment between the first prayer and the second prayer. And my question for today is what happens? Because the first prayer, he says, take this away from me. The second prayer says, if it can't be taken away from me, I'll do it. One was a prayer of hesitation and struggle, and the other one was a prayer of decision. So my question is, what happened? How was it that Jesus moved from a place where he says, I don't want this, to, okay, if it has to happen, I'm going to do it. Not my will, but yours be done. What led him to the place to be able to say to his father in the midst of this pain and torture and torment, not my will, but yours be done. In Desire of Ages, Ellen White shares this powerful, powerful teaching on what happened in between these prayers. And hopefully you follow along in our Desire of Ages Resurrection Weekend reading plan because it was so, so good. Listen to what she says about what happened here. And this is why this instills in me like this deep sense of gratitude. It says, but now, but now the history of the human race comes up before the world's redeemer. Okay, He sees that the transgressors of the law, if left to themselves, must perish. He sees the helplessness of humanity. Next verse. He sees the power of sin, the woes and lamentations of a doomed world rise before him. He beholds its impending fate and his decision is made. He will save man and woman at any cost to himself. So what was it? What was it that inspired him and encouraged him and gave him strength in this moment? Or based on this text, if this is true, what was it that got him from that first prayer of hesitation and doubt to the second prayer of faith and commitment? This is crazy, guys. I want you to notice what she says here, if this is true. The motivation for your salvation, what got Jesus through it, to got, to, got Jesus to the point where he says, I'm going to die for them. It doesn't matter what it costs me. I'm going to do it. What got him there? The motivation for your salvation was not your goodness. It was your helplessness. That's what she says here. He saw the helplessness of humanity, and he says, I have to save them. And this is good news. It was not your goodness. It was your helplessness that got him to the cross. And I don't know if you're offended by that. You're like, oh, what do you mean? I'm not helpless. You, you, know, you know how much money I have in the bank? You know what I got going on in my life? I'm not helpless. I got a lot of things going on. But when Jesus looks at our, the state of our souls and eternity and sin, he said, I have to save them. See, the cross was not an investment. He wasn't dying for you so that one day you would be good. He didn't look, he's like, okay, okay, if I, if I take this risk, maybe one day they're going to be good and they're going to figure it out and it'll all be worth it. It wasn't that, it wasn't your goodness. It was our helplessness. He said he looked at us and he did not see that. What he saw was the guaranteed lostness of our lives and he could not 
accept that. God could not accept that. It's not your goodness or your potential goodness that led Jesus to the cross. It was our guaranteed state of lostness. And so here's why this is good news. Here's why this is good news. What this means is, if it wasn't your potential goodness, but your lostness, what this means is that there was only one reason why Jesus would do this. There was only one reason why Jesus would do this. And you know what that reason is. If you think about it, you know what that reason is. I see some of you are like, whoa, what's, what's the reason? What's the reason? You, you know the reason. You know the reason. And and if you have the reason in your mind, I want you to tell it to yourself right now. It's very simple. It's one of the most basic teachings that we teach in church. The only reason, the only reason Jesus went to the cross is because he loves you. That's it. It's not because of what you could do for him. It's not because of what you could accomplish for him. It's not because of the the goodness in your heart that could be evoked and, and, and lived out if he did this. It wasn't any of that. It was just because he loves you. Unconditionally. That's the only reason. Last night I talked about how I was going to share where my mind has been. And how I feel like my mind has not really been in the right place. Last night at our, our, our Friday evening service, we talked about where's our minds as we enter into this weekend. When I wrote this message, okay, so first of all, what you guys need to know about me, if you don't know this about me, I'm a very emotional person. Right? You guys probably are like, I, I get that. I, I can see that right now. I feel things. I'm a feeler, right? And so this, this happens sometimes, but, but when I was preparing this message, I wrote that line that There's only one reason he would do this, and it's because he loves you. And I started getting really emotional. And I was like, dude, I know this. Like we sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Since we're children, I know Jesus loves me. But for some reason in this moment, I was like, why is this getting to me so much? And I realized that my mind has not been on the love of Jesus. It hasn't. For the last few months, I've been thinking, I kind of look back at, at, at what I've been doing in ministry and how I've been preaching sermons. I haven't talked about the love that Jesus has for you in a really long time. And I was thinking, why not? Like, dude, that's crazy. Like, that's terrible. How can you do that? You're the pastor of the church. How can you not tell people that Jesus loves them? It's because my mind was, was focused on, like, you know, you know, excavating the scriptures and giving you guys new things and, like, new perspectives. So you'd be like, wow, I never thought of it like that. That was a great sermon. That's where my mind was. And I had a moment of repentance where I was like, no, 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 no. Those are good and those are great and that gets people excited and that's awesome. But what it's all about, guys... Jesus loves you. That's it. We don't need new perspectives. We don't need new attitudes. We don't need new gems from Scripture. We just need to know that Jesus loves you. And that's the only thing that put him on the cross. So I was like, man, I was so grateful for this love that Jesus has for me. It's not my goodness because my goodness is rags. My righteousness is rags. Just my helplessness and the love of a father and a savior that led him to the cross. That was the first thing. Now after this, Jesus gets arrested. He gets put on trial, and this is really whack trial. And then he's there before a man named Pontius Pilate. 
And Pontius Pilate is a Roman governor. And the reason why Jesus is talking to him is because the Roman governor is the only one that actually has the power to crucify or execute anyone. That's what's happening, right? They want to execute Jesus. And they can't do it. Only the Roman governor can do it. So they bring him before Pontius Pilate to say, hey, this guy, he needs to be killed. This guy needs to be executed. So Pontius Pilate is like, okay, let me talk to him. So he talks to him. And Pontius Pilate is very confused. He looks at him and he's like, what? What are you talking about? Like, I talked to this guy. He's innocent. He's done nothing wrong. There's no reason why I should execute him. And they're like, no, no, you got to execute him for this, this, and this. And he's like, those are really bad reasons, guys. This makes no sense at all. I, I don't want to do this. It's a hassle. It's I got to do all this stuff. I got to clean up the blood. I got to do all these things. I don't want to do it. I don't want to execute him. But they kept pressing him and pressing him and pressing him. And then he realizes, oh, I have an out. I have a way to honor their request, but also not put him to death. Perfect. And that's what we're going to look at in this story. In Mark chapter 15, it says, Now it was the custom at the festival. The festival is Passover and the unleavened bread and all this stuff that we're going to talk about tonight. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. Okay, so this was kind of a thing. During this very big celebration, the Roman, uh, the Roman governor would allow one prisoner to be freed. And everyone would be really excited. So the story continues. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. Because they're fighting against Rome. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. So he says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Talking about Jesus, asked Pilate. Knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then? With the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him. And he said, why? Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Crucify him. And so he's stuck now. He's stuck. And he sentences Jesus to be killed. Now, what is your reaction when you read this story? Like, what is your response? My response is when I read this story, I get very judgy in this story. And I think, oh my goodness, how could you do that? Oh my gosh, like that's terrible crowd. How could you do that? Like Barabbas is a bad dude. He kills people and he's rebelling and, 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 and Jesus is like an angel and he's wonderful and he heals people. Like how, how could you do that? Like this is so, so ridiculous, right? Like Barabbas is a rebel and an insurrectionist. He kills people. And guess what? If you free him from prison now, what's he probably going to do? He's probably going to continue rebelling and doing all this stuff. And because he rebels, guess what? People are going to die. And then on the other end, you have Jesus. What does Jesus do? He heals. He raises people from the dead. He feeds them. He takes care of people. He brings children onto his laps and, and, and talks to them and, and, and teaches these wonderful things. It is a no-brainer. And it gets super judgy against the crowd. I don't know if you guys have that reaction too, but as I was thinking about it, I don't think that's the point of this part of the story. I don't think that's why this is even in the story. I don't think the point of the story is for me to look at the crowd and think how dumb they are and how evil and how wicked they are. Because what is really happening? Let's think of what is really happening in this moment. A criminal, a convicted, 100% guilty criminal is being set free and an innocent man 
is taking his place? What's really happening? You guys with me? A criminal, a lawbreaker, a rebel, a murderer, a thief is convicted, is guilty, but he is set free, let go, saved, and delivered. And instead, the Messiah, the one who knew no sin, steps into his place to take his punishment. The story of Barabbas is there not to point us to the sins of the crowd. The story of Barabbas is there to point to our sin. Guess what? We are Barabbas. We're not the crowd. We're not the crowd calling for Jesus to be killed. We are Barabbas. We are the ones standing there, convicted, guilty, set free, and an innocent man takes our place. Listen to what Ellen White says about this. This is a short little thing from Desire of Ages. As Jesus passed the gate of Pilate's court, the cross which had been prepared for Barabbas was laid upon his bruised and bleeding shoulders. That's crazy. Do you guys ever think about that? The cross that Jesus bore and was crucified on, it was actually Barabbas' cross. It was made for him. It was custom made for him, for his execution. It was made for Barabbas and Barabbas alone. Yet Jesus stands in the place, bears that cross, and dies. That cross, that's our cross, guys. That's our cross that he bore. It's not some random general cross. It is our cross that was made for us. And Jesus then walks in, steps into our place, sets us free. We're Barabbas. We're Barabbas. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Last thing, last story. When Jesus is on the cross, there's a few recorded last words of Jesus, seven, seven, seven statements. And I want to just focus on one. Possibly what we consider his last words on the cross before he dies. John chapter 19, verse 30 tells us this. Says, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. I want to talk about this phrase and then we're going to close. It is finished. What does this mean? So this word, it is finished, is three words in English, but it's one word in Greek. And the word is tetelestai. Tetelestai. And I'm going to talk about this word in two different ways that I think are really, really powerful. The first, and it's going to seem very boring at first, but trust me, it's worth it, okay? We're going to talk about its definition. Woohoo, definitions, meanings, excellent. And then we're going to talk about the wonderful world of grammar. And we're going to see how, how understanding the definition and grammar of this word is really, really powerful. So this word telestai is translated, it is finished. And that is true. And it's a word often used to, to describe like when you finish a task or an assignment. And that is happening. Right? Jesus is finally fulfilling his purpose and why he's there. He's fulfilling prophecy. He's fulfilling the law. All that stuff. But what's interesting is a secondary meaning, and some of you have heard this before, a secondary meaning of tetelestai is that tetelestai is a financial word. It is a word that they found on many different business documents in the, in the, in the ancient ruins. And these business documents were, were invoices and receipts. 
And it's a financial word that means, you've heard this, probably heard this before, is, means paid in full. So if, if you were given a bill and you paid it, they would take that red stamp and go, boom, paid in full. One of the last words of Jesus was for him to say, it is finished, it is paid in full. This is really helpful if you have a hard time you know, grasping the idea of, of sin and salvation. Because when we think of it in terms of crime and punishment, it's hard, right? Because, like, I don't think any of you are criminals. You might be. I don't really know. And, and none of you have been punished by the law. I mean, maybe little things here and there. But we don't, it's really hard to wrap our heads around this idea of crime and punishment, right? Because in our world, you do the crime, you do the time. You can't have someone do the time for you. No one can go to prison for you. But when we think about the, 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 the predicament of humanity in these terms, it actually gets a lot easier to, to understand. Right? A lot of times, the Bible does talk about the predicament of humanity in these terms, in these accounting financial terms. Oftentimes, it talks about it in terms of debt. And debt we know. Hopefully, you don't know too much of it. But we know what it's like to owe people money. We know what it's like to owe the credit card company money. We know what it's like, and we know when that, when that debt gets bigger and bigger, the crushing weight we feel. So the, the, the way scripture talks about debt or sin is that we owe a debt. And we owe a debt that we cannot pay. Like you will never earn enough money in your lifetime to pay off this debt. Jeff Bezos cannot pay off this debt. The richest people in the world cannot pay off this debt. And so we owe this huge amount that we can never, ever pay. And then Hebrews 7 tells us, the author of Hebrews says that what Jesus does is this. It says, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Which is like, what does that even mean? He's a guarantor of the covenant. He's a guarantor. What is that? A guarantor, another word for it is surety. Again, another boring word. What this really means, and listen to this definition of a guarantor or a surety. This is from Investopedia. Let's get on the screen. A guarantor or surety, a promise by one party to take responsibility for another party's debt if the borrower defaults. So the guarantor or the surety is like, if you default and you can't pay your loan and you can't pay your debt, I will pay for you. And the scripture tells us that Jesus is that. And guess what, guys? We've defaulted. We've defaulted big time. We owe big time. The debt is huge and we cannot pay it. And on the cross, Jesus says, I will pay your debt in full. It is finished. You don't owe anything anymore. It's powerful, right? But here's what's even more amazing. We're going to talk about the grammar of this word. Tetelestai is written in a tense called the perfect tense. The perfect tense. The perfect tense. Now, the perfect tense in English is very boring. The perfect tense in English is an action that happened in the past and it was completed in the past. No, 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 no. Put that away, put that away. Spoiling it, spoiling it, spoiler. All right, the perfect tense in English is something happened in the past and it is completed in the past. So that's boring. The perfect in the Greek is different, and it means something different. And you already saw a little preview. Maybe you guys know where I'm going with this. 
But I want you to think about this, and I want you to, I'm really hoping it's going to click. The perfect in the Greek, the it is finished, the paid in full is written in the perfect tense. What the perfect tense in Greek means, now let's put it on the screen, is an action completed in the past with results that continue into the future. You guys with me? Right? The perfect tense in the Greek is something happened in the past, and the effects of that, the result of that, will continue on into the future. What does that mean? It means that the debt was paid 2,000 years ago, and guess what? Today, the debt is still paid off. And tomorrow, the debt is still paid off. And five years from now, no matter what you've done, no matter how much debt you've incurred, the debt will always be paid off. The debt will never not be paid off. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Until the end of time, it is finished. It is finished in the past, and it is finished in the present, and it will be finished in the future. It will never not be finished. That is the power and the finality of the cross. Isn't that so awesome? Has grammar ever been so exciting for you? The action of the cross has results and effects that will continue on into the future. Your debt will never not be paid in full. That is what Jesus and Jesus alone did for you and me 2,000 years ago. And I just want to close with this. I, I, I heard this thing from a preacher, and I was like, this is so good. I have to share this with people. Where Jesus was the only one who did this. No one else did this for you. Jesus and Jesus alone walked up and climbed up on that cross and died for our sin to give us hope and future and eternal life. And this is why he says in, in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever had trouble with this verse before. Right? Kind of like the exclusivity of this verse. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Like, there's no other way to the Father except through me. And like, for me, I'm a, I'm a very inclusive person. I like to include people and invite people. I want people to be a part of things. Right? Our mission statement, we're here to connect people to a loving community. That means inclusivity. Everyone is here. Everyone has a place. You belong. Eat potluck with us. We have a good time. Join us on these programs. Live life together. Like, we're all about that. I'm all about that here. And so when I read this verse, it's like, oh, it's kind of hard to be like, only Jesus is the way. There's no other way. I don't know if you've ever thought or felt that. Especially in our world today, this seems kind of offensive that Jesus is the only way. But what I've learned recently is what Jesus meant when he said this. See, what Jesus was not saying is that he is so narrow-minded and so like proud and so arrogant that he can only be the way. That there can, no be, there can be no other ways other than me. Like, I have to be the one. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not that kind of a person. What Jesus is saying here, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one can come to the Father except through me, what he's saying is there's no other way. Why? Because no one else is coming for you. No one else is willing to do what I'm going to do. No one else is coming to rescue you. No one else is coming to pay off your debt. No one else. You are alone. The world is not coming for you. No one is coming for you. I'm the only one that is coming for you. That's why I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one else 
is coming for us. No other religion or philosophy has a way to, 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 to send someone to save you. If, you. if you study other religions and philosophies, oftentimes it's not about that. It's about how you can get to God, how you can get to heaven. What do you have to do? What are the rituals? What are the sacrifices? All the things that you have to do to reach enlightenment, reach that place. Jesus is the only one who has said, I am coming for you. You don't have to do anything. I will do everything to come to you. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And as we close, I just want you to be filled with a sense of gratitude today. Like, what, look what the cross means for us. And I want to invite you guys to engage into that. And you do that by simply saying yes to Jesus. Yes to the cross. I receive. I believe. And if that's you and, and that's what you want to do, the next step for you is really to begin the process of baptism. And so I do want to make an invitation that if anyone in this moment you feel like, yes, I want to say yes to Jesus and I haven't said yes to him before. I don't want to cut, commit to him. I want to invite you guys to come talk to me. Send an email to our church email, rockfellowshipsta.gmail.com or, or send me a text or talk to me after it. Like say, just tell me. Just respond to this because that's the way. Like that's the process. That's the path for you. And I want to invite you tonight to our evening service tonight. Or we're going to engage in the cross and the story of the gospel and the story of the crucifixion through the communion. Through the taking of bread and wine tonight. To celebrate and to remember and to engage in that. So I pray that today as we leave this space for worship, that in your heart you would feel nothing, nothing but gratitude for your living Savior. Your living Savior. Who is living resurrected and alive and wants to be with you today in this moment. I hope that you would make that, that, that decision. I hope that you would invite him in. I know today can be just a wonderful day of celebration, worship, and thankfulness. Praise Jesus for the cross. Let's pray. Thank you, God. You are a God who saves. You are a God who bears our burdens daily. And you've bore the burden of, of sin, the one that we could never bear by ourselves, Lord. And Father, that, that, that moment, that action on the cross 2,000 years ago, its effects and results still are with us today. All because, all because you love us. And we're not worthy of that. But you love us anyway. Thank you so much. In your name we pray. Amen.